A vegan superhero is a new breed of athlete. Stronger, healthier, and driven by purpose. Vegan superheroes wage war against society's status quo and win. Vegan superheroes battle the forces of evil that profit from the suffering of others. Vegan superheroes take a stand for what they believe in and prove the haters wrong. If you ask the meatheads and clueless fitness gurus, they'll tell you that what we're doing is impossible, yet it's happening every single day. Vegan superheroes inspire change, spread compassion, challenge the status quo, and fuel the revolution. Our mission is to help you become a vegan superhero. Welcome to the Vegan Gym Podcast. Hey, what's going on, guys? My name is Leif Arneson, and I am joined here by my co-host, my brother, Anders. What's going on, man? Yo, yo, yo. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Vegan Gym Podcast. Woo! We cannot wait to get into... Oh, we scratched this. a little bit there. Yeah, you did a little bit. <laughs> I was trying not to bring attention no, to I, it. But. I can't get up that high, really. That's, uh, that's but a struggle. To answer your question, man, I've been fantastic, especially because we have that new intro to this podcast. It is freaking sweet, and yeah. I hope you guys like it as well. That's something Leif has been working on for weeks now. And yeah, this is the unveiling of it. So yeah. hope you enjoyed it. Let us know if you did. Um, but other than that, man, what what are we talking about today? Well, this episode is going to uh, be all about plant protein. So we're going Woo! to go into detail about how much you should be eating and all that stuff. So uh, more specifically, we're going to be covering uh, like recommended protein targets, whether you're trying to shred fat or build muscle. We're going to be talking about plant protein quality, which is something that we've actually talked about in the past, but it's super important. It matters just as much as protein quantity, and everyone's worried about like how much protein am I eating or how much should I eat, yeah. but the type of protein that you're eating matters as well. Yeah, I don't think you can ever talk about it enough. <laughs> no, it's really important, and I don't see anyone else talking about it, so we need to talk about it. <laughs> Uh, we're also going to be talking about why eating lots of plant protein is not actually bad for you. We're going to be talking about optimal protein timing and the anabolic window. Quote, unquote. Uh, yeah, if you, if you guys don't know what that is, we'll, we'll uh, tell you in detail later in the episode. Uh, we're also going to be talking about how much protein your body can actually absorb in a single sitting, which is something that uh, there are kind of lots of myths about that in the uh, in the fitness world. We're also going to talk about the the truth about soy, which is something that we talked about uh, in boobs. a previous podcast. <laughs> but yeah, talking about the uh, the effects of phytoestrogens on men's testosterone levels, talking about women's uh, breast cancer rates, and a few other things to just kind of uh, look at soy and figure out like, is this actually good or bad for us? Because there's so much misinformation out there and people are worried, but there's actually no need to be and I'll explain why. So we got tons of stuff to cover. Uh, this podcast is actually going to be covering information from a whopping 55 peer-reviewed scientific studies. But don't oh my goodness. <laughs> but, yeah. But don't worry, we're gonna keep it uh like as interesting and understandable as possible. And I'm not gonna be citing all of the studies as I go through to keep things flowing. Uh, but all the studies for this episode will be linked in the show notes if you want to check those out. And this episode is also based on a new short book that I just published this past week called The Vegan Protein Guide. And you can actually download a digital copy of this guide for free by going to our website, theveganjim.com. And if you download that, you can review all the studies really easily. And all the information that we discuss in this episode will be in that guide. So... 
We have a lot to cover, uh, let's get right to it. And the first thing we're gonna be looking at is how much protein should you be eating to shred body fats? Now, to ensure that your body burns body fat and maintains lean muscle mass as you're following a caloric deficit, which is absolutely vital to shredding body fat in the first place, you must consume a high protein intake. And a large body of evidence suggests that a low-fat, high-protein diet actually increases fat loss while also preserving lean body mass and maintaining your metabolism during the dieting process. That is all really, really important to fat shredding success. Your exact protein target depends on the intensity, duration, and frequency of your training program, but here are general guidelines for your target protein intake. So if you work out for less than three hours per week, you should aim to consume 0.7 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass per day. If you work out for between three to six hours per day, you should aim to consume about 0.9 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass. And if you work out for more than six hours per day, you should aim to consume 1.1 grams of protein per pound of lean body mass per day. Now, beyond preserving lean muscle, high-protein diets have also been proven to diminish hunger levels while dieting, which can make the process of shredding fat much easier. It's really annoying to go through the entire day and just feel hungry all the time, and that's one more thing that a high-protein diet is going to help you to overcome. So, next question, how much protein should you actually eat to build lean muscle? Now, low-protein dieting is really popular among the vegan community in particular, and uh, we've talked about this before, but I feel like it's kind of because most vegans uh, kind of just associate like a high-protein diet with like the, like, the meatheads meat yeah, or like yeah. bodybuilding or like consuming tons of animal products. It doesn't have to be the case. You can consume that from plant sources, uh, but that idea that like low protein dieting is best is largely responsible for the misconception that vegans can't build muscle like omnivores can which is definitely something that uh that we all see kind of changing um and kind of our kind of social outlook on kind of veganism and the plant-based movement but if you do consume an adequate amount of high-quality plant protein, then you can build muscle just as easily as omnivores can. And uh, I'll explain exactly what I mean by high-quality protein in just a minute. But studies from the University of Western Ontario, the Exercise Metabolism Research Group, and McMaster University, and tons and tons of other studies all agree that the ideal range to aim for is about 0.7 to 0.9 grams of high-quality protein per pound of body weight, which is about 1.5 to 2.0 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight to maximize muscle growth. Now, I uh, break this down based on kind of how much activity you're doing and your recommended protein target. Uh, again, I don't want to go too much into numbers here and confuse people. Uh, you can check out the guide uh, at thevegangym.com to kind of see the breakdown of all that stuff. And uh, those numbers might sound high. Those protein targets might sound high to some people. But when you're like in the gym and you're really trying to crush weight and work your butt off to build muscle and gain vegan muscle, 
then you want to be sure that you're really getting all of the protein you need to make sure that you're not leaving any of those gains on the table, right. that you're not really uh, kind of giving up any potential muscle growth or muscle prevention in the case of fat loss. Um, so it's important to consume a high protein diet. Now let's talk about the, the truth about vegan protein quality. And uh, I referenced this earlier, but uh, the fitness world often focuses on protein quantity and overlooks protein quality. But the truth is that actually both of these measures of protein are equally important. So for example, the protein that's found in kale or other vegetables is not of the same quality as the protein that is found in tofu. Now, plant proteins all possess the same basic building blocks, which are known as amino acids, but they all have different protein quality scores. And high quality versus low quality proteins are terms that are generally used to distinguish the relative proportions of the different essential amino acids that are found in certain foods. Okay, so there are 20 standard amino acids, there are nine uh, essential amino acids, and there are there can be differing levels of all of these amino acids acids in the foods that we have and the protein that we're consuming from different food sources. And the more closely that those proportions actually match the amino acid proportion of the protein that makes up our skeletal muscle, the higher its quality. So all vegan foods contain every single one of the essential amino acids. That's a huge misconception, but yes, all vegan foods contain all of the essential amino acids. The thing that, uh, that most people kind of get hung up on is that most vegan foods don't contain the ideal proportions of the different amino acids necessary for muscle protein synthesis, which is a process of building muscle. And that is why most vegan proteins are said to be incomplete. However, your body can store these different amino acids for later use in something called the amino acid pool in your body when they can be later combined in the right proportions and formations to form uh, the, the amino acid building blocks of skeletal muscle. So for this reason, you do not need to mix vegan proteins to form complete proteins. It is a good idea to kind of get a large uh, array of high quality protein sources, but the the idea of mixing proteins is totally outdated and uh, was debunked by the Clinical Research Center at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in 1994. Uh, but anyways, back to protein quality. So how do we actually measure protein quality? Well, it all comes down to the term digestibility, and that is that really kind of indicates the amount of nutrients that are absorbed by the intestines and transported into the bloodstream. So essentially, it's like how much of the protein that you're consuming is actually able to be used by your body to uh, build muscle and to conduct all of the other things in your body that are required uh, by kind of using amino acids. Well, researchers at Mass University in New Zealand analyzed the amino acid digestibility of 14 foods using the two most widely accepted methods for analyzing protein digestibility. Now, I'm not going to read through their whole table and all of their research uh, in this episode, uh, but you can look at it by uh, downloading the protein guide. Uh, but the main point of their findings from all their research is that all protein is not equal. 
Okay, so for example, one gram of protein uh, from rice protein concentrate has a digestibility score of 0.371, and that would make it inferior, at least in terms of protein, to one gram of protein from pea protein concentrate, which has a digestibility score of 0.822. So in other words, rice protein concentrate does not provide the same essential building blocks for optimal muscle growth when compared to pea protein concentrate. Now, in general, plant-based proteins actually do exhibit lower digestibility than animal-based proteins. But that is in no way to say that a vegan diet is in any way inferior to an omnivorous diet. It's simply a fact and it's something that you really should keep in mind when optimizing a vegan diet for fitness success. So our bodies just kind of naturally synthesize amino acids from protein sources that more closely mirror our own body's proteins. Remember when I was talking about high quality versus low quality, the higher quality proteins are more easily uh, digested and assimilated into our muscles because they more closely mirror the amino acid profiles of our skeletal muscle. Now that doesn't make it healthy or necessary to consume animal products. In fact, it's much the opposite opposite, plant protein is preferable because food is a package deal. And plant foods offer a copious array of health-promoting nutrients like vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytochemicals, and fiber that animal products do not. And there's a ton of other stuff in animal products that you do not want to be consuming like cholesterol and heme iron. However, it's important to keep in mind that plant-based protein sources such as corn, oats, beans, peas, and potatoes tend to exhibit lower digestibility than animal-based protein sources do, with values ranging from 45% to 80%. So this basically means that if you eat about 40 grams of protein from these plant-based food sources, your body will ultimately utilize approximately 18 to 32 grams of protein. However, purified plant protein sources, such as soy protein isolate, pea protein concentrate, and wheat gluten, which is also known as seitan, display a digestibility that is similar to that of animal-based protein sources with digestibility values greater than 90%. Additionally, a study published in the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition found that pea protein and whey protein have the same effect on developing muscle mass and strength. So protein digestibility is a really important topic, but as long as you're choosing high quality plant protein sources, you're not going to run into any issues with uh, maintaining lean body mass while you're focusing on shredding body fat or with building lean muscle mass if you're focused on bulking. So let's move on to the next topic, which is are high protein diets bad for you? Many vegans associate a high-protein diet with poor health and for good reason. According to Harvard Medical School, health conditions linked to a high-protein diet include the development of high cholesterol, a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, weight gain, increased cancer risk, and kidney disease. Now, these concerns are valid, but they are specific to a high-animal-protein diet, not a high-plant-protein diet. So in the NIH AARP Diet and Health Study, which is the most rigorous study of diet and mortality ever conducted, researchers observed the diets of 500,000 men and women over a period of 10 years. After compiling their data, the researchers came to a simple conclusion. 
Meat consumption is associated with an increased risk of dying from cancer, dying from heart disease, and dying prematurely in general. And this conclusion was made after controlling for other diet and lifestyle factors, thereby excluding the possibility that people who ate meat also smoked more, exercised less, or failed to eat their fruits and veggies. The researchers hypothesized that heme iron, which is the iron found in animal products, is largely to blame. Heme iron generates cancer-causing free radicals and has been linked to heart disease. Plant foods actually contain all of the iron that you need in the form of non-heme iron, which doesn't generate the same cancer-causing free radicals that heme iron does. Furthermore, phytonutrients and phytates in plant foods have been proven to slow down and even stop cancer cell growth. Now, plant protein is also not bad for your kidneys. We're going to be discussing that more in a future episode. So let's move on to the next topic. When should you consume protein? Now, many fitness gurus and bodybuilders claim that if you miss your post-workout anabolic window, then you will lose out on all of your potential gains that you just worked your butt off for in the gym. And this post-workout anabolic window is almost always claimed to be less than one hour. So anabolic in this context just means muscle building. So it's this idea that you only have a certain amount of time after you finish your workout to consume protein or else your body is just going to go into like a catabolic state and you're going to just lose all the gains that you just worked for in the gym. But unlike other common bodybuilding myths, the scientific literature actually has supported this idea until fairly recently. In fact, a 2013 article published in the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine noted that consuming protein and other nutrients within 45 minutes after exercise increases muscle and strength gains. Dozens of other studies conducted over the last 30 years have reached similar conclusions, all suggesting that you should aim to consume an adequate amount of protein within an hour after you finish a workout. However, a recent meta-analysis conducted at Lehman College reviewed data from 20 of these protein timing studies and unveiled a common design flaw among these studies' designs. In this meta-analysis, they determined that most of the differences in muscle mass gains cited in previous protein timing studies could be explained by differences in total daily protein intake. In other words, subjects that were put into the immediate post-workout protein intake group, the uh, anabolic window protein group, within these 20 protein timing studies actually consumed more total protein than all of the other groups in these studies, which doesn't really make for a fair comparison. A 2014 study conducted at McMaster University reinforced their conclusion by finding that muscle sensitivity to amino acids remains elevated for at least 48 hours after exercise. However, this sensitivity spikes around 3 hours after exercise and drops over time, so consuming protein sooner rather than later tends to have a greater effect on muscle protein synthesis, which theoretically leads to more muscle and strength gains over time. In conclusion, there is no clear anabolic window during which you must consume protein or risk losing out on all of the gains that you just worked for in the gym. So there is no research to suggest that eating protein immediately after your workout is going to benefit you more than eating protein a few hours after your workout. 
But between three hours and 24 hours, the research becomes a bit fuzzy. So just to be on the safe side, it's probably best to consume protein within about three hours after exercise. This can also be more or less important depending on your pre-workout nutrition. So for example, if you work out fasted first thing in the morning, it's going to be more important for you to eat post-workout protein sooner than someone who works out in the afternoon after eating a high-protein lunch. However, if you work out in the evening after your last meal, then you should probably consume a protein shake before heading to bed. Alright, next question. How much protein can your body absorb in one meal? Now, one of the most well-known bodybuilding myths is the idea that your body can only absorb a limited amount of protein from a single meal. The most common figure given is 20 grams, as in your body can only absorb 20 grams of protein at a time. And there's never multiple figures given, it's just 20 grams of protein across the board for everyone, whether you're a marathon runner or a lead bodybuilder. Now this is what we call bro science because it's a misconception of highly questionable scientific credibility passed around among gym bros by word of mouth as if factually true. The actual truth based on scientific research is that your body can absorb nearly an unlimited amount of protein into your bloodstream. So the more accurate question, which actually does have scientific merit, is how much absorbed protein can your body use from a single meal to build muscle? Or in more technical terms, what amount of protein maximally stimulates the post-absorptive rates of muscle protein synthesis? Well, research has long suggested that there exists a ceiling on muscle protein synthesis that has been termed the muscle full effect. In other words, there is only so much protein that your body can use at a time to rebuild muscle. Now, obviously, there must exist some kind of ceiling on the amount of protein that your body can process and use for rebuilding and growing muscle. But the question is, how much protein will actually cause you to hit the ceiling? Well, according to numerous studies conducted over the past 20 years, the number isn't very high. A 2014 study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition determined that just a 20-gram dose of high-quality protein is sufficient for the maximal stimulation of muscle protein synthesis in men with resistance training experience who weigh around 80 kilograms. The researchers concluded that any amount of protein consumed beyond 20 grams would just get oxidized, as in the amino acids in that protein would be burned for energy, or filtered out by the kidneys and excreted from the body in urine. However, there are many other important factors that the study did not analyze. For example, while the average fit guy probably does weigh around 80 kilograms, there are many guys with substantially more muscle mass. And logically, a guy with more muscle mass needs and thus can process more protein per day. Now, beyond total muscle mass, there are at least two other major factors that have a direct effect on an individual's protein absorption ceiling, and that is the amount of muscle mass that they train and also their age. So let's discuss these factors in more detail and take a look at the science. Now, the first factor that we're going to look at is your total muscle mass. In 2015, researchers from McMaster University used linear regression analysis on previous protein research, which ultimately led them to recommend a target protein intake of 0.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per meal to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. This target is equal to 0.18 grams of protein per pound of body weight per meal. 
their research determined that consuming protein beyond this dose would result in no further stimulation of muscle protein synthesis. Now, my current body weight is about 200 pounds, so according to their recommendation, I should aim to consume 36 grams of high-quality plant protein per meal to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. But the head coach of our Vegan Superhero Academy coaching program, Ashley Markham, who's been on the podcast before, weighs about 120 pounds. So she only needs to consume about 22 grams of protein per meal to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So the findings from the research are very helpful in determining the optimal protein feedings for a wide range of individuals with different body types. And although a protein target based on lean body mass would hypothetically be the optimal measurement over a protein target based on body weight, this research does not yet exist. Just keep in mind that their recommendation is most relevant for lean individuals, so their target can be lowered for individuals who carry considerable body fat. Now, the second factor we're going to look at is the amount of muscle mass you train plus your training intensity. In my opinion, the most notable design flaw in previous muscle full effect studies is the subject's training programs. Until recently, all of the studies use isolated training programs that usually just target lower body only. For example, in the 2014 study that determined a 20-gram dose of protein is sufficient to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis, the subjects only performed one lower body workout that included just two exercises, leg presses and leg extensions. Well, in 2016, a team of researchers sought to correct this flaw by designing a muscle full effect study that required subjects to complete a full body resistance training program. Their full body training resistance program included the chest press, lat pull down, leg curl, leg press, and leg extension. Now, that certainly isn't an ideal training program for improving your strength or body composition, but it did push all the major muscle groups to exhaustion for the subject participants. In other words, the total volume, which is workload times number of repetitions, and intensity of this study's training program is comparable to a heavy compound exercise-focused training program that we have recommended numerous times before on the podcast and that most elite natural bodybuilders and all elite powerlifters follow. So what did this study find? The researchers concluded that the ingestion of 40 grams of high-quality protein following a full-body resistance training workout stimulated a greater muscle protein response than 20 grams in young men with resistance training experience. The clear takeaway from the study is that the amount of muscle mass you train, as well as your training volume and intensity, have a substantial effect on how much protein your body needs to rebuild and grow muscle. The last factor that we're going to look at is your age. A 2015 study analyzed the relative protein ingested dose response of muscle protein synthesis in younger and older men. The researchers determined that older men need to consume more protein per pound of lean muscle mass to get the same muscle protein synthesis response as younger men. Presumably, the same effect can be seen for women, though this research does not yet exist. In conclusion, to make your diet as potentially optimal as possible for stimulating muscle protein synthesis, you should space your total daily protein intake evenly across 4-5 to five meals per day. In a 2018 scientific review published by the renowned hypertrophy researchers Dr. Brad Schoenfeld and Alan Aragon, they write, quote, 
Based on the current evidence, we conclude that to maximize anabolism, one should consume protein at a target intake of 0.4 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per meal across a minimum of four meals in order to reach a minimum intake of 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. End quote. And that's about 0.18 grams of protein per pound of body weight per meal. But at the end of the day, the most important factors for maximizing muscle protein synthesis are one, your total daily protein intake, and two, your protein quality. If you don't want to or can't follow their advice exactly, then just aim to hit your total protein intake every day. Now it's time to discuss the truth about soy. And we're going to start here. Do the phytoestrogens in soy have feminizing effects? The isoflavones in soy belong to a class of compounds generally known as phytoestrogens, which are plant compounds that have estrogen-like structures but are actually 1,000 times weaker than human estrogen and do not behave exactly like human estrogen in our bodies. Research has proven that phytoestrogens should not be equated with the hormone estrogen. It simply does not have the same effect on the body. In numerous clinical studies, no effects on estrogen levels have been noted when men consumed as much as 150 milligrams of isoflavones per day. Each gram of soy protein contains approximately 3.5 milligrams of isoflavones, so one serving of soy food, such as 100 grams of tofu or 250 milliliters of soy milk, contains about 25 milligrams of isoflavones. That means that you would have to eat about 600 grams of tofu, equivalent to 1.3 pounds, or drink 1.5 liters of soy milk, equivalent to 0.4 gallons, to consume 150 milligrams of isoflavones. While that is a lot of soy, as a vegan bodybuilder, there are many days that I actually come close to consuming this much soy. And despite consuming close to this amount of soy every single day for the past three years, I have not had any issues with my testosterone levels or physiology in any way. But I'll be the first to dismiss anecdotal evidence in favor of research, so let's take a look at a 2010 meta-analysis in which researchers evaluated data from 15 different placebo-controlled trials of soy foods, soy protein, or isoflavone supplements. They concluded that the 15 studies demonstrated no effects from soy consumption on men's testosterone levels, estrogen levels, or sperm quality. Several subsequent studies to this meta-analysis have reached the same conclusion. The consumption of phytoestrogens from soy foods have no negative effects on male or female physiology. Not only are the concerns of phytoestrogens from soy unfounded, they actually distract the public from the real concern of consuming actual estrogen from animal products, particularly from dairy products. All animal products contain real estrogen. The products that claim no added hormones still have hormones in them. The producers just don't add any extra hormones. And unlike plant phytoestrogens, animal estrogens actually do mimic human estrogen in our bodies because they originate from animals. So let's move on to the next topic, which is, is soy actually healthy for you? Let's start by discussing soy and breast cancer. Since estrogen causes breast cancer cells to proliferate and cumulative estrogen exposure increases breast cancer risk, there has long been concern that the phytoestrogens in soy food promote breast cancer. 
However, in Asian countries where soy is a dietary staple, the prevalence of breast cancer is much lower than in the United States. This paradox fueled careful analysis through hundreds of scientific studies. The findings of these hundreds of studies have conclusively proven without a shadow of a doubt that soy consumption does not increase breast cancer risk. In fact, the research suggests that soy intake actually helps to protect against initial breast cancer development, especially postmenopausal breast cancer, breast cancer recurrence, and breast cancer mortality. A 2008 review by researchers at the Keck School of Medicine showed that women who consume one cup, which is 237 milliliters, of soy milk per day, or half a cup of tofu per day, which is equivalent to 100 grams, had a 30% lower risk of developing breast cancer versus women who avoid soy. Soy has also been shown in many studies to reduce the risk of recurrence in breast cancer survivors. A recent study examined 6,235 breast cancer survivors and found that women who consumed the most soy had a 21% lower risk of all-cause mortality over the 9-year study duration compared with low-soy consumers. But the anti-cancer benefits of soy foods extend far beyond breast cancer. In a 2009 meta-analysis conducted by researchers at Yonsei University, higher soy intake was associated with a 26% decrease in prostate cancer risk. Asian population studies have demonstrated that higher soy consumption is associated with as much as a 50% reduction in prostate cancer risk. Soy has also been linked to decreased risk of developing lung, stomach, and colorectal cancers. Soy is also beneficial for your cardiovascular health as soy lowers blood pressure and LDL cholesterol. So soy is abundantly healthy, but shouldn't you be concerned about genetically modified soy? A whopping 94% of soy crops grown in the U.S. are genetically modified. But while 94% of soy crops grown in the U.S. are genetically modified, an astounding 98% of these soy crops become animal feed. That means that the vast majority of genetically modified soy is actually used to feed chicken, pigs, and cows, which are then consumed by omnivores who worry about eating genetically modified soy directly. As a vegan, it's actually super easy to consciously avoid genetically modified soy. All you have to do is look for a 100% organic or non-GMO project verified label on your soy products. For omnivores, however, it's a different story. So the last thing that we're going to talk about is protein supplements. Now, I consume a few servings of protein powder per day, whether I'm shredding or bulking. And to hit the high protein targets that I recommended earlier, especially if you're working to shred body fat and don't have many calories in your diet plan, you might need to do the same in supplementing with protein powder. Furthermore, as we've already discussed, protein quality is just as important as protein quantity, and most protein powders top the list of high-quality vegan protein sources. And there are many other reasons that I recommend using protein powder. Protein powder is super convenient. You can make a macro-friendly protein shake in less than a minute on the go. Protein powder also has amazing macros. Most high-protein vegan foods are also high in carbohydrates, such as lentils, or high in dietary fat, such as tofu. And it's very helpful to have a protein source in your diet that is almost entirely protein to boost your protein intake without adding a bunch of calories. 
And protein powder also helps to add flavor if you find the right one. You can mix protein powder into shakes, baked goods, oatmeal, uh, smoothie bowls, and a bunch of other foods to add flavor and help to make them more macro-friendly. Now, when it comes to choosing a vegan protein powder, there are dozens of options to choose from. And these vegan protein powders all have different macros, prices, and geographic availability. I recommend that you do some research and choose a protein powder from an honest company that cares about sourcing wholesome quality ingredients. And we just put up a vegan protein review on our YouTube channel so you can go check that out and see how we analyze the top 19 vegan protein powders and uh, analyze them for a bunch of different things like macros and price and uh, I think that you'll find that to be really helpful. All right, so that's going to be a wrap for this episode. We covered all the basics of vegan protein in this episode, but there's also a lot more really good information that I cover in my vegan protein guide. For example, I'll share all of our go-to vegan protein sources and favorite recipes. Plus, you can see all of the protein intake tables and easily check out all the scientific research that we cited in this episode. You can go ahead and download the vegan protein guide for free at thevegangym.com. And thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We really appreciate your support. I'm sure that you can think of at least one person in your life who could really benefit from hearing this information. If you would go ahead and share this episode with them, that would absolutely mean the world to us. And we would also really, really appreciate a review. So thanks again so much. And we'll catch you on the next episode. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode. To take the next step in your vegan fitness journey and get access to all our best content for free, check out theveganjim.com. We'll teach you everything you need to know to torch body fat, break through plateaus, build lean vegan muscle, and supercharge your health. Get started right now at theveganjim.com. Until next time, peace, love, and gains.